Section 42 of Mark Twain's Autobiography, Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Friday, April 6, 1906. Mr. Clemens's present house unsatisfactory because of no sunshine. Mr. Clemens meets Etta in Washington Square. Recalls ballroom in Virginia City 44 years ago. Orion resumed. He invents wood-sawing machine. Invents steam canal boat. Orion's autobiography. His death. This house is number 21 Fifth Avenue, and stands on the corner of Ninth Street, within a couple of hundred yards of Washington Square. It was built fifty or sixty years ago by Renwick, the architect of the Roman Catholic Cathedral. It is large, and every story has good and spacious rooms, but not enough sunshine. Yesterday I went down to Washington Square, turned out to the left to look at a house that stands on the corner of the square and University Place. Presently I stepped over to the corner of the square to take a general look at the frontage of the house. While crossing the street I met a woman and was conscious that she recognized me, and it seemed to me that there was something in her face that was familiar to me. I had the instinct that she would turn and follow me and speak to me, and the instinct was right. She was a fat little woman, with a gentle and kindly but aged and homely face, and she had white hair, and was neatly but poorly dressed. She said, "'Aren't you Mr. Clemens?' "'Yes,' I said, "'I am.' She said, "'Where is your brother Orion?' "'Dead,' I said. "'Where is his wife?' "'Dead,' I said, and added, "'I seem to know you, but I cannot place you.' She said, "'Do you remember Etta Booth?' I had known only one Etta Booth in my lifetime, and that Etta rose before me in an instant, and vividly. It was almost as if she stood alongside of this fat little antiquated dame, in the bloom and diffidence and sweetness of her thirteen years, her hair in plaited tails down her back, and her fiery red frock stopping short at her knees. Indeed, I remembered Etta very well, and immediately another vision rose before me, with that child in the center of it, and accenting its sober tint like a torch with her red frock. But it was not a quiet vision, not a reposeful one. The scene was a great ballroom in some ramshackle building in Gold Hill or Virginia City, Nevada. There were two or three hundred stalwart men present, and dancing with cordial energy, and in the midst of the turmoil Etta's crimson frock was swirling and flashing, and she was the only dancer of her sex on the floor. Her mother, large, fleshy, pleasant, 
and smiling sat on a bench against the wall in lonely and honored state and watched the festivities in placid contentment she and etta were the only persons of their sex in the ballroom half of the men represented ladies and they had a handkerchief tied around the left arm so that they could be told from the men i did not dance with etta for i was a lady myself i wore a revolver in my belt and so did all the other ladies likewise the gentlemen it was a dismal old barn of a place and was lighted from end to end by tallow candle chandeliers made of barrel hoops suspended from the ceiling and the grease dripped all over us that was in the beginning of the winter of eighteen sixty two it has taken forty-four years for etta to cross my orbit again i asked after her father dead she said i asked after her mother dead she said another question brought out the fact that she had long been married but had no children we shook hands and parted she walked three or four steps then turned and came back and her eyes filled and she said i am a stranger here and far from my friends in fact i have hardly any friends left nearly all of them are dead i must tell my news to you i must tell it to somebody i can't bear it myself while it is so new the doctor has just told me that my husband can live only a very little while and i was not dreaming it was so bad as this orion resumed i think the poultry experiment lasted only a year possibly two years it had then cost me six thousand dollars it is my impression that orion was not able to give the farm away and that his father-in-law took it back as a kindly act of self-sacrifice orion returned to the law business and i suppose he remained in that harness off and on for the succeeding quarter of a century but so far as my knowledge goes he was only a lawyer in name and had no clients my mother died in her eighty-eighth year in the summer of eighteen ninety she had saved some money and she left it to me because it had come from me i gave it to orion and he said with thanks that i had supported him long enough and now he was going to relieve me of that burden and would also hope to pay back some of that expense and maybe the whole of it accordingly he proceeded to use up that money in building a considerable addition to the house with the idea of taking boarders and getting rich we need not dwell upon this venture it was another of his failures his wife tried hard to make the scheme succeed 
and if anybody could have made it succeed she would have done it. She was a good woman and was greatly liked. Her vanity was pretty large and inconvenient, but she had a practical side, too, and she would have made that boarding-house lucrative if circumstances had not been against her. Orion had other projects for recouping me, but as they always required capital, I stayed out of them, but they did not materialize. Once he wanted to start a newspaper. It was a ghastly idea, and I squelched it with a promptness that was almost rude. Then he invented a wood-sawing machine and patched it together himself, and he really sawed wood with it. It was ingenious. It was capable, and it would have made a comfortable little fortune for him, but just at the wrong time Providence interfered again. Orion applied for a patent and found that the same machine had already been patented and had gone into business and was thriving. Presently the state of New York offered a $50,000 prize for a practical method of navigating the Erie Canal with steam canal boats. Orion worked at that thing two or three years, invented and completed a method, and was once more ready to reach out and seize upon imminent wealth when somebody pointed out a defect. His steam canal boat could not be used in the winter time, and in the summer time the commotion its wheels would make in the water would wash away the state of New York on both sides. Innumerable were Orion's projects for acquiring the means to pay off his debt to me. These projects extended straight through the succeeding thirty years, but in every case they failed. During all those thirty years, Orion's well-established honesty kept him in offices of trust where other people's money had to be taken care of, but where no salary was paid. He was treasurer of all the benevolent institutions. He took care of the money and other property of widows and orphans. He never lost a cent for anybody, and never made one for himself. Every time he changed his religion, the church of his new faith was glad to get him, made him treasurer at once, and at once he stopped the graft and the leaks in that church. He exhibited a facility in changing his political complexion that was a marvel to the whole community. Once this curious thing happened, and he wrote me all about it himself. One morning, he was a Republican, and upon invitation he agreed to make a campaign speech at the Republican mass meeting that night. He prepared the speech. After luncheon he became a Democrat, and agreed to write a score of exciting mottos to be painted upon the transparencies which the Democrats would carry in their torchlight procession that night. 
He wrote these shouting democratic mottoes during the afternoon, and they occupied so much of his time that it was night before he had a chance to change his politics again, so he actually made a rousing Republican campaign speech in the open air while his democratic transparencies passed by in front of him to the joy of every witness present. He was a strange creature, but in spite of his eccentricities he was beloved all his life, in whatsoever community he lived, and he was also held in high esteem, for at bottom he was a sterling man. About twenty-five years ago, along there somewhere, I wrote and suggested to Orion that he write an autobiography. I asked him to try to tell the straight truth in it, to refrain from exhibiting himself in creditable attitudes exclusively, and to honorably set down all the incidents of his life which he had found interesting to him, including those which were burned into his memory because he was ashamed of them. I said that this had never been done, and that if he could do it, his autobiography would be a most valuable piece of literature. I said I was offering him a job which I could not duplicate in my own case, but I would cherish the hope that he might succeed with it. I recognize now that I was trying to saddle upon him an impossibility. I have been dictating this autobiography of mine daily for three months. I have thought of fifteen hundred or two thousand incidents in my life which I am ashamed of, but I have not gotten one of them to consent to go on paper yet. I think that that stock will still be complete and unimpaired when I finish this autobiography, if I ever finish it. I believe that if I should put in all those incidents, I would be sure to strike them out when I came to revise this book. While we were living in Vienna in 1898, a cablegram came from Keokuk announcing Orion's death. He was seventy-two years old. He had gone down to the kitchen in the early hours of a bitter December morning. He had built the fire, and then sat down at a table to write something, and there he died, with the pencil in his hand and resting against the paper in the middle of an unfinished word, an indication that his release from the captivity of a long and troubled and pathetic and unprofitable life was swift and painless. End of section 42, Friday, April 6, 1906.